Shane? Yes, sir. Can you say short song? Short song? Thank you. <laughs> You're not going to provide context? We have a like three-year-long running joke of any time someone starts the track right before the song, uh. you say short song. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, lead salesman of eyeglass cleaners and eyeglass cleaning accessories at I Can See Clearly Now, Incorporated. Ooh, okay. Damn, you just wrote that? I just wrote that, like five minutes ago, or less. He He wrote the song, I Can See Clearly Now. Yeah, and then formed the subsequent company of cleaners and accessories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am co-host Sham Hartman, and I will tell you tonight, three out of the four co-hosts are going to tell you their real name. One is a lie. That's for you guys to figure out. (laughs) Thank you for that, Sham Hartman. (laughs) I am co-host Peter Cook. And I learned today that I have an evil doppelganger. Oh. Do you want to know what his name is? Yes. It's Mr. Nash. What? I'm guessing no one else has seen the classic Ernest Goes to Jail. (laughs) (laughs) Where he had an evil doppelganger named Mr. Nash. Felix Oh, that was good. I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I've never seen a single Ernest movie in my entire life. Wow. Oh, you need to fix that. Is wow. it worth it, though, without the, without the nostalgia? Like, <laughs> I, I just don't say. know. <laughs> I can't say, because I don't think I've seen one in 25 years yeah, myself. Yeah, I never revisited that. <laughs> <laughs> Ernest P. Worrell. All right, well, you guys revisit first, and then let me know how it is, and I'll make my final decision then. All right, will do. All right, that's three co-hosts i said there is a fourth all right well i am the guest co-host thanks for inviting me guys and i am the optometrist meteorologist extraordinaire evil alter ego of host sean hartman shane hartman (laughs) so there's multiple evil alter egos going on here too (laughs) yeah and sean shane and sham yeah this is great this is a different vibe from normal. Well, what evil record are we going to talk about now that we've all gathered together? Well, I think the record has a different vibe from what we normally do, too. Yeah, so what I brought you guys is Johnny Nash's 1968 LP called Hold Me Tight. Some people, a lot of people think of Johnny Nash, if they know of him at all, they think of him incorrectly as a one-hit wonder, sort of a gimmick for his I Can See Clearly Now. But Nash was actually a pretty well-rounded artist, and he had a lot of hits before that, including some hits off this album. People don't talk about that. So I kind of wanted to bring in something uh, with a different sound and uh, introduce Nash and kind of give him a little credit for bringing Jamaican music to a broader audience. I think uh, that... For years, there was a sense that Jamaican music and Caribbean music was like ripe to break through into the U.S. market. And for several years, record companies had tried with a little bit of success here and there to kind of make it sort of a dance craze out of, you know, whatever Jamaica's new music was. It started kind of like with Belafonte and then Millie Small and Desmond Decker. But Johnny Nash, being a guy from the U.S., he doesn't really... He kind of gets looked over for being one of the first guys to do that. And people just think of him as sort of a gimmick artist, sort of a one-off. You want to give him a taste of the true Johnny Nash? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Let's, uh, let's kick it off with, I think, uh, 
It's hard to pick a tracks off of here, but I think the first one, Hold Me Tight, is a good one to start with. It was a big hit for him. And uh, yeah, let's check that out. All right, Hold Me Tight. Is this side A track one? Yes, I believe so. Wonderful. Fussing and fighting, baby Hold me tight Let's let bygones be bygones Let's think about tomorrow, girl Our future's bright well, I know I was wrong But I was just a fool Too blind to see You were the only girl for me Everything's gonna be alright, baby Hold me tight <laughs> I know I was wrong, but I was just a fool, too blind to see. You were the only girl for me. Oh, but now I see the light, and everything's gonna be alright, baby. Hold me tight, girl, you know I That is not at all who I thought Johnny Nash was. <laughs> Seeing his records and like, I feel like I've typically seen them in, well, really it's similar to Johnny Mathis, who we previously covered. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah, where I just wrote it off as like Grandma Grandpa Records. I don't have any interest in this. But I never had the slightest idea that he like did rock steady or reggae music. It, it's funny. Once yeah. I started researching this for this episode and listening to him, I was suddenly it occurred to me, okay, wait, I do know this guy because the first CD that I ever owned w- was a compilation the best of reggae that was put out by KTEL, you know, it was like this budget bin reggae collection and it had Johnny Nash's version of stir it up on it. And I, right, my right. dad bought that for me after I had, I really liked Jimmy Cliff's version of, I can see clearly now that was on the radio cool running when I was 13. Yeah. Cause it was on the cool running soundtrack. And so I thought, you know, I'm like, yeah, I like this reggae music. <laughs> and so when I got a CD player for Christmas, like a disc man, that was one of the CDs that my dad bought me was the best of reggae. And there it was. I went and looked it up and, and sure enough, Johnny Nash stirred up. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess like, yeah, most of my music listening life, I have known Johnny Nash, but not really because that was about as far as I went with it. How about you, Sean? Did you, you know much about Johnny Nash before Johnny Nash is one of those guys that I have just kind of a passing knowledge of from, you know, digging through the bins for years. I always, you know, knew his hit. I can see clearly now. And I remember like early on and digging into soul related music, I had just been like playing some more Johnny Nash singles and came across that song, uh, hold me tight with Cupid on the B side. I was like, Oh, he did Mm -hmm. more reggae. And 
like this is pretty good like this is better than <laughs> the one song i knew by him so i think i also picked up a 45 of his version of stir it up and a few things here and there so he's kind of always been someone that i had in my head like i should research more and figure out what the full story is with this guy because i you know i knew there was some songs i liked at the very least but until preparing for this episode i have not done that deep dive so i'm excited to hear some more information that you guys have dug up Sean, I thought as our resident reggae dub guy, you'd be, you know, deep into this already. Yeah, you can't know everything, right? Well, that's the thing about Johnny Nash is is he kind of doesn't get that credit even among rabid reggae fans because I'll be honest, like when I was a kid, I, I mean, I can't remember a time when I didn't know the song I can see clearly now. I mean, I, it's just always been mm-hmm. there. But even as a teenager, when I was really getting into reggae and Jamaican music, I think I looked at Nash as, you know, this guy that was doing like a typical sort of outsider take on Jamaican music. And there was some lack of authenticity, but I hadn't really heard this album yet. And what actually turned me on to it was in the late 90s, there was this Bob Marley and the Whalers, complete Whalers collection that came out. And it was like a massive, like 10 CDs, you know, spread across like three different sets. And it had a bunch of stuff that Johnny Nash had produced with his manager, Danny Sims, for Bob Marley and the Whalers. And so I was like, wow, this is, this is like so different than anything else in the Whalers catalog. So kind of got me interested and then I sort of went backwards into Nash and started discovering wow this guy was he was really on the front end of all this stuff so this album in particular was recorded in Kingston with I one of the top house bands at that time they were called Lynn Tate and the Jets they were led by a dude Lynn Tate he was a guitarist from Trinidad who actually had a huge impact on Jamaican music. If you've ever heard Train to Skyville or Desmond Decker's 007, you know, that's Len Tate doing a lot of the lead guitar work on there. And so he was leading the, the band on some of these tracks, and that's why it has that super authentic sound. It's because it, it, it was authentic, you know. But I think... Well, that and it was recorded at Federal Records right, in Kingston, right? Which is where Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff recorded their very first singles. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That band is like just one of the top bands. Um, I don't know if you guys want to get into talking about folks that played on here, but these guys are. If you look at any classic reggae record, you'll see their names, and. One of the things that was frustrating about this record is you get you start to try to look into who played on here and there's not a lot of information so you kind of have to do a little bit of digging and uh, I actually found out that there were at least two different bands on here one being the Lantate and the Jets band which we heard on Hold Me Tight and another band made up of Maybe some music musicians from Kingston, but also some of the top, like New York Atlantic session guys, like Bernard Purdy, mm-hmm. Eric Gale, Richard T, Chuck Rainey, guys that you that you you all have mentioned before on your show. Yeah, we just talked about some of those guys back on the Cheryl Lynn episode. Right. I don't know where we want to go from here. If we want to uh, play another clip, let's let's run it back to where. Okay. Johnny Nash comes from. Don't look back. Okay. Oh, no, that's just one of the songs on here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, a Temptations cover, right? Okay. Let's talk a bit about Johnny Nash. He's got a really interesting trajectory. As you were saying, Jeremy, he's a lot of people thought of Nash, especially when this album came out, came out they thought of him as this like teen idol uh, crooner type who was sort of like Johnny Mathis. In fact, his record company at the time sort of pitched him as a uh, Johnny Mathis type of singer. So this was a bit of a left turn. He's another Johnny. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But he was born in Houston, Texas. He grew up in the Third Ward, and he grew up um, in a working-class family. His dad was a chauffeur, 
And like many people, he started singing in, in church, was just immediately like people were like, wow, this guy's got it. So by age 13, he was singing on a local TV show called The Matinee. And then like a few years later, I think about three years later, by the time he was 16, he was discovered by this guy, Arthur Godfrey. And he had a TV show that was a nationally broadcast show that was kind of like the, the teen idol or American idol of that time. A lot of famous pop artists were kind of discovered through that. So then shortly after that, he signed with ABC Records. And like you said, he was pitched as, as sort of a Johnny Mathis type character. His recordings were pretty, pretty straight ahead pop, a lot of ballads, maybe like a little dash of jazz and R&B there. But, you know, like a lot of string arrangements and it was pretty, pretty middle of the road pop. His first hit was actually a cover of the Doris Day song. A very special love. But so. I would say it's pretty important to point out his first hit was 1957 when he would have been 17 yeah. years old. Right. He was, he was a kid. Yeah. And so he kind of continued sort of in that lane for a little bit. He did, did a little acting. In 1959, he was in a film called Take a Giant Step, which was a a film remake of a popular play about uh, African-American teen, and he kind of gained some traction from that. Then in the early 60s, around 1962, he met uh, this guy, Danny Sims. And Danny Sims is a fascinating character. He, he could warrant his own podcast. He had ties to like the, the Gambino crime family in New York, and he was a restaurant owner who was also dabbled in the entertainment business as like a promoter and a booker and a manager. And he became, as I said, he was a crucial figure in Nash's career and many, many other people for that matter. Oh, well, and like the whole reggae world. <laughs> right. He, yeah, absolutely. He sort of sing him and well, we'll get there. I don't want to spoil it. Go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Shane. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. You're fine. So uh, basically, uh, Nash, by the mid-60s, he started moving into kind of some R&B-flavored material. He recorded for, like, Argo and Cadet, which were, like, sub-labels of uh, chess. And then he and his manager decided to move to Jamaica. Danny Sims basically connect, convinced him to move down to Jamaica and start working there. And so that's where we get this record and uh basically his sound from here starts to evolve because he meets bob marley and some other folks and he just starts to realize you know that this music is really has something to offer and so his whole thing was he wanted to take the sound and kind of polish it and add some of those motown production polish that would help it cross over to a more mainstream audience which is how we get the the rock steady with the the strings and stuff on top, which some people aren't aren't that crazy about, but I think he makes it work. He's like the uh, reggae version of the Nashville sound. Oh, yeah, sort of, sort of, sort of. Okay, yeah. Do you have you a see that. a good track you want to go to next? Yeah, I think uh, the next track that I wanted to play, uh, I want to give just a little bit of an introduction about this one because it's interesting. Nash's relationship with Bob Marley is pretty well known, but people don't realize that when he met Bob Marley, he signed the entire Whalers group, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, and I think even maybe Rita Marley to this production deal. So this album doesn't have any Bob Marley songs on it, which I can see clearly now, I think has like four Bob Marley songs but it does have two Peter Tosh songs on it. And uh, this is one of those, and I think it's a super funky tune. I love it. It's called You Gotta Change Your Ways, and it's, this is uh, one of the ones with a different band, so you'll, you'll kind of get that vibe when we check it out. So this is, let's see, I have to pull the album out to look and see what track it is. Side one, track three. Side one? You gotta change your ways. Oh, I'm sorry, side B, track three. Side B, track three. Mm -hmm. 
Purdy on the drums there that he was the drummer on that track right I believe so again I'm taking my information secondhand from that Bob Marley and the Whalers complete Whalers they have a little thing where there's some sessions that were recorded at this same time and it says band probably includes and it has a list of, of players and it's uh, all these New York guys but they were basically all coaxed into coming down there and, and hanging out. Um, in fact, Hugh Mesakela was supposedly down there too, hanging out and played on some of the Whaler stuff, but I don't think he's on this album. But yeah, Bernard Purdy, wow. He's cooking it up. Mm-hmm. Adding that shuffle in there that like, yeah, you, you wouldn't, it doesn't jump out as being like, oh, that's not reggae drums. Like it fits in perfectly. And then when you listen closely, it's right. like, oh, that's, that's that Purdy shuffle working in there. It's just, yeah, it's great. Well, those guys actually, they knew about reggae, even though it was really young at that time. A lot of those musicians had been introduced to it. And uh, in fact, Creed Taylor, um, who you guys have talked about before, he had a real short-lived label that he was trying to promote reggae. And a lot of these same guys played on some of those releases that he put out. And uh, actually, Eric Gale went back in the mid-70s and did an album with some of these guys along with some Jamaican guys. Peter Tosh plays on it, but it's, it's straight instrumental reggae stuff. You know, these New York uh, session guys, they obviously, yeah, they knew what they were doing. So can either Shane or Sean clarify for me, is this rock steady or is this reggae or what exactly is the difference? Cause I know those are things, but I'm too ignorant to know the difference. That's a very hard question to answer. Uh, a rock steady into reggae starts to get into a, a blurry space. Technically, I guess it, this would be rock steady, but because of the things he's playing on the drums, it starts to move a little more towards like a funky sort of reggae feel. But, you know, rock steady was a period of just like two years from 66 to 68 where you heard that and then reggae starts to to come in but um the first track was distinctly rock steady hold me tight this one is a little bit less it still has that tempo it's it's about the tempo of of rock steady but it's there's something that makes it a little funkier a little more syncopated is that like the thing that it's slower if it's rock steady no rock steady was actually yeah slowed down from ska 
But then this man, we could do a <laughs> we could do a whole series podcast series on this. But early reggae is actually super fast. A lot of it's very up tempo. It's it's some of it's even faster than ska. If you listen to like a song like uh, Pressure Drop or Monkey Man, and, and you're counting, you're listening to how the drums are playing. But so yeah, Rocksteady was slower from ska, which came before it. And a lot of people think it slowed down even more with reggae, but that's not that's not necessarily accurate. Sean, you have any feedback on that? Yeah, I <laughs> uh, I can pretty much just echo what you said there. the The lines of some of these reggae subgenres are very very blurry, and oftentimes would be intentionally blurred by some of the artists that per- are performing it. And you also mm-hmm. get the sense that some of these genres are maybe a little bit like retroactively placed on here yes. especially what you're yep. saying with rocksteady in a lot of ways it was the transition period between ska and reggae and then with you're saying about the up-tempo early reggae songs a part of the transition there is they're playing these ska tracks and then kind of having maybe one or two instruments or accenting like the half time of it and then all of a sudden it became right, more popular right. for reggae to just be slowed down in that half time and the other thing mm-hmm. that i had read is that a lot of that transition in genre had to do with the political landscape of Jamaica, because this was right around the time when Jamaica had earned their independence. So there was a move in the arts community to kind of create more of their own voice and unique style, as opposed to just having their interpretation of mostly U.S.-based R&B music. So yeah, there's there's a lot affecting these different subgenres and changes in this time period in Jamaican music. All the terminology and history I know about reggae music comes strictly from being a sublime fan as a teenager in the 90s. Oh, God. (laughs) For me. That was the jumping off point for so many people, though. And, you know, I mean, at least he was, like, shouting out some legit artists, so you gotta give him credit for that, at least. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, I... I'm a little bit older than than you guys, so for me, it was like, I kind of came in through, like, Bad Brains and Operation Ivy and those kind of mid to late 80s uh, punk bands that Thirdly were flirting with Scott? reggae. Yep. Yeah, I was thinking of that. I said it. I was I was thinking <laughs> of that when I was like, oh, yeah, it's, I, I forget the chronology of these things. I'm like, oh, yeah, Scott did come first because third wave Scott was a long time ago now. I had also read that the transition from original Scott into Rocksteady is at least somewhat owed to the fact that the recording studios in Jamaica got better, which may or may not have had something to do. Danny Sims had sold off his recording studio in the U.S. when him and Johnny Nash moved down to Jamaica. But the increase in quality of the recording studios in the mid-60s allowed for the bass to actually be captured well. And that's where the bass started playing a huge role in Jamaican music. The bass definitely uh, was a change up in that switch between styles. Like a lot of the ska players were playing, you know, upright acoustic bass was a thing. Bass has always been a part of Jamaican music. And the thing that I've heard uh, about this that that really was like a, a eureka moment for me where I was just like, oh, yeah. It's because everything was uh, based around this dance hall or uh, uh, sound system culture where these huge sound systems would show up to play yard parties. And they basically wanted people to be able to hear this music for as far away as possible so that they would show up. And the way to do that is to pump those bass frequencies because that's those are the, that's what carries. the frequencies that, yeah, those are the frequencies that travel for miles you know so we can thank jamaican music for bringing that bass into uh, popularity i don't know if that if that had anything to do with the transition i mean you've heard i've heard all sorts of different stories about it was really hot that summer you know and so everything slowed down that's like (laughs) one thing one theory that people always go back to is the summer of 66 was super hot and so everything slowed down people didn't want to dance fast i don't i don't know if that's true i think you know music just evolves so yeah i think people started you know smoking more grass and just everything slowed Uh. down (laughs) (laughs) 
quite possible. It all, it all was adding a little bit here and there. And, uh, I think there's also a lot of parallels in the early stages of hip hop and the early stages of reggae in that, like you were saying, a lot of these early reggae hits are because they're being produced strictly for the sound systems and street culture, as opposed to radio airplay. So absolutely things like the baseline and the level of bass were super important and having those thick bass lines just work so much better on slower songs. I was actually just reading about the classic Jamaican remix artist, King Tubby and part of what, is attributed to his rise and fame is that he was a radio operator and could set up his sound systems to separate the bass so it's not playing out of the same speaker and also have the maximum amount of bass on the tracks that he was making without making the needle skip. So because he had like just a little bit louder bass than everybody else, he was able to rise up. So yeah, like the bass and the the street volume are huge to the the birth of these genres and the movement. I didn't even think about that aspect of yeah, this, these would have been on vinyl records and bass has to be treated just so or else the needle's going to jump out of the groove. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. Found a way to make it work. And I've taken us on a okay. dead end. Uh, <laughs> we, we went way down a rabbit hole there, boys. Yeah, yeah. Too esoteric. No, no, I, it, it's, it's easy to, to do that when you start talking about reggae because it, it's, such a, it's such a crazy thing that such a tiny island could produce this music that this has really worldwide culture impacted the world. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this Johnny Nash album too, because I really think it was on the forefront of bringing that sound to people outside of Jamaica yeah, and the UK. He, he gets a little, yeah, huge. he gets a little bit of credit, but he, he really should get more credit. I think. Yeah. He was the first, the first song you played, hold me tight was the first reggae song to hit the American charts, I read. Right, yeah. You know, there was uh, My Boy Lollipop before that, which was a ska tune, uh, Millie Small, um, produced by, or uh, arranged by Ernest Ranglin, a famous guitar player. But uh, yeah, I think because Israelites by Desmond Decker came out like a year later, maybe, or maybe later the same year as Hold Me Tight, but... I don't think it registered with people that Hold Me Tight was a rock steady song, you know? It had the strings and, you know, this was before Trojan Records was started putting strings on reggae records and stuff. And I think he he just gets dismissed unfairly. Also, a lot of rock steady and everything was hugely influenced by U.S. soul music. So it, would make, oh, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to have a U.S. soul artist come through and help bridge that gap from a, a different starting point, you know? Absolutely, yeah. The other thing I think is interesting with this record, there's actually a four-year gap between this being released and his record before this. His first LP was 58, and he was putting out a record every year over the next six years. So, like, you can tell, like, he didn't just drop a reggae record to see if it worked. He moved to Jamaica and, like, learned about the culture and made connections and then made this record. Lived there for years. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think in the in the mid 60s, you know, he started to make a, a bit of a turn that was towards uh, more soulful music. You know, he 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 was kind of dipping more into that R&B stuff with his sides that were done for Cadet and Argo, which were released as singles, but then later put put on an album after he became a huge megastar. They're like, here's this album. But uh, w one thing that I read was that when he was in Jamaica and he started really connecting with the music scene there and the musicians, he started to reconnect with his own working class roots. And that kind of took him to a different place as an artist. And I think it, it shows on this album because it's, it's good and it's soulful and you really hear the voice that is something special. Agreed. Give him another special track, Shane. Yeah, let's hear something. Okay, let's see. All right, I would like to take this in a sort of different direction for this one. And actually, when, when Jeremy and I were uh, emailing about this and I told him the tracks that I had selected, he was happy that I selected this one. And I was glad that he was happy because it's, it's a very, it's the only non-reggae rocksteady track on here. And it's actually just kind of a, straight 6-8 soul ballad 
Oh, is this People in Love? Yes, People in Love. Man, the voice on here, if you want to know why this guy is a star, this song will just show it to you because his voice is just gorgeous. So let's check that one out. Looks like Side A, Track 4. There you go. People here, people there I see people everywhere The things they do, the words they say All seems part of a game they play People laugh, people cry They cheat and they lie But love recorded on the same machine that guided by voices recorded their early stuff on (laughs) a little wobbly we were talking about that during the song and how the the guitar feels so raw and out of tune and how it 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 gives it like this diy feel and i was saying i that's one of my favorite parts about it is is just how raw the backing track feels against his voice which is is just so pure and sweet. And one of the things I wanted to mention about this one is if you guys are familiar with any of the, the Bob Marley and the Wailers ballads with Bob taking lead, there's a, a song called Chances Are. Oh, I love and that I think song. It's, oh. it's one of the, yeah. his best vocal performances. And it, this has a really similar feel and I don't know if it's the same band, but it, it, it's quite possible. I think um, Danny Sims released that Chances Are, you know, after Bob Marley died as sort of a cash-in. But there's some really good stuff on that record. And that's what uh, this, this tune really reminds me of that with that sort of raw backing track. Yeah, it's very jangly and almost home-recorded the way it just like blips in with mm-hmm. little things. But yeah, like you said, I think it really provides contrast to like how amazing his voice is that Yeah, his voice is perfect. Yeah, like <laughs> when it's against strings and everything, everything sounds right and I don't think it I feel like this almost accentuates it more and makes you like more aware mm-hmm. of how good his voice is. It kind of sounded like he was singing over a rusty old music box. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was trying to think of like somebody to compare his voice to, and I couldn't think of anybody. His voice is, is kind of hard to describe. It's sort of in the same range as like Ronald Isley, but it has such a different smooth texture. Everything just feels effortless. It made me think of uh, the guy, uh, Jonathan Edwards, that you guys just recently did an episode on, oh, yeah. how just 
smooth and effortless his singing is. And that that's kind of what Nash reminds me of a little bit. I mean, he got all those comparisons to Johnny Mathis, and I think that that still right. makes sense here. And this this is like it's what Johnny Mathis would have sounded like if he'd have like gone and made some real raw record around this time period. But you know, he should have. Yeah, that would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely wanted to get that tune into the mix because, like I said, it's it's different than the other tracks on there, and it 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 really just showcases his power as just a vocalist yeah there's uh, there's a lot of great tunes on here i don't know i thought i'd mention a few there are some tie-ins with maybe other episodes that you guys have done i think uh, peter mentioned don't look back that was a song that was made famous by the temptations and it was also covered by peter tosh twice during his career he does a cover of groovin by the young rascals or the rascals Lovey Dovey, which was recorded by the Coasters and also by Otis and Carla Thomas, and then famously Sam Cooke's Cupid, which was, I think, maybe the B-side to Hold Me Tight. Yeah, it was. And I think there was a lot of love for Sam Cooke in Jamaica, so him oh, putting yeah. that track on there was very fitting. Absolutely. It's it's definitely one that's you. I have an obsession with Jamaican uh, covers of other mm -hmm. genres and Cupid. Cupid is one that just pops up over and over and over again. They, they definitely have some love for Sam Cooke. A couple other tunes I just wanted to mention. There is another Peter Tosh song on here called Love. Peter Tosh uh, did record a, at least one version of. There's You Got Soul, which was written by Nash. And there's some different versions of that on a record that he released about a year later called Folk Soul. And then finally, there's a record called, or there's a song called Don't Cry, which was written by Jimmy Norman. And I didn't know much about Jimmy Norman, but uh, in looking at information for this, I found out he was a session musician and songwriter who was probably most famous for writing Time Is On My Side. Interesting. Recorded by Irma Thomas and uh, famously covered by the Rolling Stones. And he was also, and this was the part that, that really tripped me out, he was a vocalist on Harlem River Drive, which was a, a kind of a cult classic experiment that combined like Latin, soul, and jazz. I think the, Eddie Palmieri was like kind of the lead force in that. But Jimmy, Jimmy Norman was the guy that came in and sang on that. Interesting. So that was kind of a a cool little factoid that I found out when I was researching this. So, Sean, did you put together a Spotify playlist for this episode? Well, you're going to be real surprised, but yes, I did. Do you want to tell us what's there's on it? There's a bunch of good tracks on it. Yeah, there's some really good stuff. I think people should listen to it. They're going to like the music that's on it. This is maybe one of the better playlists that I've made. Uh, actually, a bunch of the tracks I put on here, Shane mentioned throughout the episode, so that's convenient, or at least the artists were mentioned. And we didn't even collaborate <laughs> didn't on that. Didn't even. Just happened. There's some Desmond Decker in the Aces. I did not put Israelites. I put Itmech on there, which is like the less popular, but just as good song from around that time period. I put two tracks from the Harder They Come soundtrack, which was another uh, pivotal moment of reggae being popularized in the u.s and the uk the soundtrack was almost more popular than the film and was a lot of people's entry point into yeah. reggae music yeah my parents had that one in their collection yeah there you go sweet and dandy by toots and the maytals off of that there's some um, johnny osborne on here marcia griffiths uh we talked a lot about rock study in this episode and i have a track by the godfather of rock study alton ellis with his classic cry tough a third nice. world on there for you know some uh, what was happening a few years later down the road. Winston Francis for some more rock steady kind of soul crossover. The Heptones, Millie Small with the classic My Boy Lollipop is on there. Dave and Ansel Collins with Double Barrel. We did a premium content Patreon episode on that one. Jimmy Cliff's Many Rivers to Cross also from the Harder They Come soundtrack. And then speaking of reggae covers of other songs there is an al brown plus skin flesh and bones doing al green's here i am baby 
Highly recommended track. Nice. Uh, Johnny Mathis is on there from Love is Blue, which I believe was a 1968 album as well. You can find all this and more on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to find this and every other playlist that we make to accompany the episodes. Is that how you say her name, Marcia Griffiths? I've always said Marcia Griffiths. Uh, I don't know. I've heard both. <laughs> I think it's Marcia. Marcia. All right. I stand Marcia? corrected. I just guessed. Marcia, so. Marcia, Marcia. It could be Marcia. Mar- well, this has been a micro segment of For the Record with Peter Cook. <laughs> right here, right now. <laughs> don't have to come back to it later. I'm sure, I'm sure somebody will tell us if we got it wrong or right. It's, it's, a, we, uh, it's also pronounced Johanny Nash. Oh, my gosh. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. Well, Shane, how about if do you have anything that you would like to plug while you're here? Yeah, I have a few things. First, I, I want to give a shout out to my buddy, John Gregory, a.k.a. Juan Huevos, for uh, giving me some technical assistance on my recording here. John, is uh, he's got a couple podcasts uh, on here you can check out wherever you check out podcasts, Lurk Mode and Coronatos. And he does a podcast production for uh, Sparse Mansion Media. I play bass with a couple bands, uh, one band called Dynamite Brothers, another called The Old Ceremony. You can find us on the internets, including Facebook, places like that. I have a Instagram account. If you dig album art, particularly Caribbean stuff like I do, that's pretty much all I post there. It's uh, occasionally I'll have reviews, but you can check me out there. I'm uh, swangin two S W A N G I N, the number two, and yeah, that's about it. Ah, uh, so you're the one who left the review on this album on Discogs. I yeah, that's me. <laughs> you re- you recognize my handle? I was wondering if that was you, and I was gonna ask anyways, and then you said the handle, and I was like, ah, that's I, that review I had just read earlier today. <laughs> I I think it was it might have been the same review that I sent you guys when we were when I was like, yeah, you should consider this these albums, and I sent you some some little write-ups I had done. I think that, that might've been the very first one. Nice. So. Oh, had Here you we done are. those? I'm trying to, trying to spread the gospel of this record. <laughs> those write-ups that you sent us, I thought that you had done them exclusively for us, but they were pre-written, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I, <laughs> nah, they were, they were, they were for you, Peter. I did them they were, specifically I was, just for I was, you. I was flattered. They were so elaborate. Like, man, yeah. going all in. I've got a notebook full of album reviews next to my bed that someday I'm going to show to you, Peter. Oh, I look forward to that day, Jeremy. I've been. I mean, Sham. I'm uh, Sham. Yeah. (laughs) I think I figured out who the uh, the fake the fake name is here. Yes. It's Sean. (laughs) It's Sean. Yeah, it's me. (laughs) Only took us a hundred plus episodes to figure it out. Johnny Nash put out this record and then uh, fell off the face of the earth, right? Well, no. Actually, his uh, like we talked about, his greatest success was to come after this uh, when four years later he released I Can See Clearly Now, and that was like it just went stratospheric. He basically became a household name, but then after that, even though he released... Uh, a couple more LPs that are really good. I, I would mention My Merry Go Round from 1973 and Celebrate Life from 1974. Uh, both of those were on Epic, and they're fantastic. But you don't hear anything about them. Definitely worth checking out. Those are those show up kind of cheap uh, as well. And he, he continued to release music throughout the 70s, but didn't have much con- commercial success. And then he kind of walked away from the music business in the early eighties by most accounts and lived out a pretty private life out of the public eye until his death actually just about a year ago. Yeah. October 6th, 2020. And I just want to throw out there the version of, I can see clearly now that was in my head was not the Johnny Nash version. It must be the the Jimmy cliff version from the Jimmy cliff runnings, but go listen to the Johnny Nash one because I got to say it's better. And the like bridge is like 
I got goosebumps, yeah, man, just I, hearing you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, like that bridge like actually made the hairs on my neck stand up, not just like a metaphor that people say. Like it, I heard it and was like, oh my God. Yeah, it did the same for me, except I had shaved the back of my neck <laughs> that day, so <laughs> they didn't stand up. Oh, brother. <laughs> Jesus Christ, let's get out of here. What are you sending us out on, Shane? I want to send you guys off with uh, the Jimmy Norman track that I mentioned, Don't Cry. I, this one, it kind of reminds me of Desmond Decker's Israelites. Not not in the in that it really sounds like it, but just that the music is so happy and chipper. But if you tune into the lyrics, you get like a totally different picture of what's going on here. And uh, I think it's kind of like the perfect fusion of what he was trying to do with Jamaican Rocksteady and these sort of pop soul production values. So, yeah, don't cry. Let's hear that one. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and schooling us on Johnny Nash. Mr. Shane. The pleasure was mine. I believe you are a real person. I don't think I mentioned this on the episode, but when Shane first sent a message to us, I just assumed that it was Sean doing some kind of weird joke <laughs> or perhaps trying to like get undue influence by making like fake Facebook characters <laughs> to like you know, all these fans keep recommending more reggae on the podcast. Very guys. thinly veiled. <laughs> I really it's funny that says so much about what you think about Sean that he would do something deceptive <laughs> like that and then but in doing that he would like come up with this name that was so <laughs> close <laughs> to his own name. He only changed a couple letters. <laughs> yeah, it's because I don't I don't believe Sean is a deceptive person, so he wouldn't be very skilled at it, see? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I see you've thought about this. Yeah, <laughs> backing up the bus here. All right. All right, well, thanks for joining us, Shane. Thank you. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Peter Cook. And I'm Shane Hartman. I meant to say I'm co-host Sham Hartman. Good night from <laughs> Sham Hartman Incorporated. <laughs> Can't be my rent. 